Hello and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and today I'm joined by Kunan Jones, the author of two novels, The Long Dry, which won the Betty Trask Award, and Everything I Found on the Beach. Kunan appears in the Britain issue with The Dig, an extract from a novella in progress about a young boy who finds himself in a wood in Wales, drawn into an adult world of violence and capturing badges for baiting and fighting. We took a trip down the Granta borough to discuss writing about adolescence, the wilds of Wales, and what animals can teach us about empathy. We'll begin with the reading. The boy had not slept. He was gawky and awkward and had not grown into himself yet. When his father came to rouse him, he found the boy awake with expectation. Warm, remember, said his father. The boy nodded loosely in the way he had. The way was to have a minute hesitation before doing things. This came from trying to be eager and cautious at the same time around his father. He was long and thin and he could have looked languid without this nervousness, but instead he looked underdeveloped. When he got out of bed in his t-shirt and shorts, it emphasised the awkward gangliness of him. He had the strange selection of muscles teenage boys' bodies either grow or don't, but the skin on his face was a child's. He got dressed and went downstairs. In the kitchen he sat at the table with a kind of extra awakeness not sleeping can give you and started automatically to spread paste onto the sliced bread. He had a low-level excitement running through him, a day off school. He felt the same illicit closeness to his father as he did when they went lamping, and in these times he was capable of forgetting that his father did other things. His father put the tea on the table and filled the big flask, and then they sat and blew on the tea and drank it. Then they went out. They took the dogs from the run and got them in the car and drove off the estate. The boy found the smell of the sawdust and dog shit in the run hard to bear in the early morning. The smell of it was a strange note against the deodorant he enveloped himself with. He had not been digging before and was trying to imagine it. He imagined it frenzied and was excited by this. He did not know it would be steady and unexciting procedural work and that it would not be like ratting at all. He had broken his own dogs to rat himself and this gave him pride. When they picked on him in school he kept his pride in this and he hung on to it. The boy's father parked up the car and they sat seeing the dog runs and the broken machinery and the boy was momentarily stupefied by the darkness and emptiness about the place. In the car lights he could just see beyond the runs the bodies of cars like some disassembled ghost train littering the field. The big man heard them pull up outside and saw the car lights catch and reflect on the mesh of the run and came out to them. The boy had a brief inarticulate awareness that his father shied a little when he saw the big man come from the house. He hadn't seen that in his father before. The boy thought the man looked like some big gypsy. The man leaned into the window and the dogs in the back came alive at this new presence and set off a yapping which set off a yapping in the dog sheds beyond. The car was full of a deodoranty smell that got into your mouth. They yelpers? asked the big gypsy. They're good dogs, said the boy's father. It stinks, said the man. It's a girl's bedroom. The big gypsy looked accusingly at the boy and the boy felt himself redden. He felt the nervous flush go up in his throat. They're good dogs, said the boy's father. We can't have them hard-mouthed, said the man. No, they're good dogs, the father said. We can't work with hard-mouthed dogs, the big gypsy said. The big gypsy was looking at the terriers taking them in. The boy could feel there was a grown man tension. Then his father said, They're not hard-mouthed men. They're good dogs. There were three terriers in the back. One was the big patterdale Jip, 13 inches at the shoulder and a solid 14 pounds. It was about as big as you'd want for a badger dig without being too tall in the shoulder to suit the hulls. It was why the man had called the boy's father, thinking of the big boar. What's the pup? said the big gypsy. He nodded at the boy's dog and the boy felt the redness on his throat again. He's just along, said the boy's father. The big gypsy looked at the pup. 
He's not going down, said the big gypsy. He had to take the badger and there was too much risk the young dog would not be able to hold him. The boy felt this shame and the crushed feeling from school came up in him. He's just along, the boy's father said. They parked up in the machine yard of the big farm and got the dogs out and coupled them dog to bitch with the iron couplings. This was one of the bigger, richer farms locally and had years ago been one of the manor farms that worked under the big house. You could tell the historical management of it by the wider fields and the way the big oaks were spread out in them. In the east a powder of light was just coming and in the barn the tractors looked immense and military. At the edges of the fields the trees were still a solid deep black. They coupled the boy's pup to the older dog and coupled the gypsy's older bitch to the big patterdale. They had to couple the right dogs, dogs that could work together at rat, could fight at a badger dig, as if they sensed the individuality of the process. They got the tools and divided them up to carry, then they took the big five-litre tubs of water from the van and the bag with the tin drinking bowls and the food and gave them to the boy. They weighed on him immediately. It was crisply cold and with their thin handles the weight of the water bottles burned on his fingers. They went through the gate and down the lane, letting the dogs run in front of them, passively aware of which dog took the lead of the other as they rooted in and out of the hedgeside at the dying scents laid down in the night. Mud had gathered in the track and the overnight rain left it wet, and the boy, alert and cold and over-awake, took in the suck sounds underfoot and the clinking of the coupling chains and the body sounds of the dogs as they pushed through the undergrowth of the bank. He was using the culping sounds of the water sloshing in the tubs as a kind of rhythm to walk by. The thin light was beginning to increase and the few bean-shaped flowers on the gorse stood out with unnatural luminosity. The men's feet went down hard and solidly in the lane, but the boys constantly tripped on the loose stones the winter's rain had brought down, as if he didn't have enough weight to himself. They went off the track and whistled the dogs in as they went over a field, the lambs prone and folded next to their mothers. Some of the smaller lambs wore blue polythene jackets against the rain and they looked odd in that first light and overprotected. The boy could hear the ewes crunching and one or two faced the dogs and banged a foreleg on the wet ground, giving a thump that sounded like kicking a ball. He wished he could play, really play, but he was clumsy against the other boys. He loved the idea of himself playing, and his inability was just another little cruelty. Even now he looked out across the lightning field and saw himself catch a high kick, the crowd of trees a fringe of spectators coming to their feet as he took the ball. But then... The school field, the ball smashing off his fingers to the laughter of the other kids, the teachers shouted scorn. That was the reality of him, and it brought up a wad of sick and anger. They worked their way down through the top trees that stubbled the slope at the base of the field and stopped by the brook, and the boy set the water down. They put the dogs to lead. His pup was shaking a little with excitement. He's got rats somewhere, he said. The sentence came out on the swell of pride, and he realised it was the first time he had talked in front of the man. The man lifted up a tub of water and unlidded it and took a rough swig. Keep them in, he said. The bank snared. The mink had made their way up from the fur farms by now. They were not indigenous and so it was righteous to kill them. They took out the fish and the waterside birds, even kingfishers from their nests in the burrows, and had annihilated the watercourses as they came up. It was as well to be able to produce something they could legitimately hunt if by chance they were stopped. It would explain the dogs. In reality, though, they should shoot the mink to make it look like they'd run it into a gun. The boy was made thirsty by the river and wanted to drink, but he did not like the idea of drinking the water after the man had drunk from the tub. In the relative openness of the lane and across the field, the dawn light had been enough, but here things closed in and they checked the snares with the torchlight. Bar the one, the snares were empty. The boy heard the dogs whine with the scent of something and the man signalled them to hold back, and the boy put the water tubs down and stretched his fingers. Then the boy heard the dull crack of the mink's skull and for a while did not register what the sound was. The man had hit it with a fold-away spade. They went on. The water had become convincingly heavy to the boy now. 
The scrub began to encroach the bank until it was thickened and difficult to pass, and after a while they cut away from the stream. It was heavy going, but somehow the big man had mobility in it, and seemed to fit into the countryside in a way the other two did not. The dogs sniffed in and out of the torch beams ahead of them, and the men pushed through the sprawling holly as they drove into the wood. Every now and then they disturbed something, and there was a clatter in the branches or the tearing of undergrowth as something fled. The wood thickened. Everywhere there were branches down, and in the strange beams of light some looked animal and prehistoric. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, it occurred to me that there's a fevered fantasy quality to this story. Parts of it seem almost hallucinated, like the trees, like the football audience, and the tractors, the military tractors. Um, a ghoulish kind of quality to the forest, and I wondered, is that something that you're able to write about is this a way to talk about adolescence that the story allows us into, a universal thing that might be experienced more widely, but that you're bringing us into this kind of strange netherworld between, I suppose, the poachers and this quite ordinary um, growing up with playing football? Yeah, I think there's a real combination but of that sort of direct reception of life that you get as a teenager when you have to apply to certain mores, certain things you've got to do and be amongst but you haven't necessarily left the childlike aspect or childish aspect um, and imagination now I'm not sure you ever do and certainly you know there is an element to the countryside which or being in, in that landscape as they are it does it is almost mythic as you said it creates this kind of fantastical um, illusion and you know, for example, in in the novel Everything I Found on the Beach, there's a similar kind of portrayal of the beach in you know first light or just before first light with you know a grown up man who's down there. But it, again, it takes on a kind of personality of its own, and that's certainly how I feel in those environments. And I think that you know it's it's a very specific um, reaction to suddenly being out something that's on a human scale if you like, it's not built for us and we're in it and you, your imagination does go wild certainly It feels to me that certain parts of this story are very weighed and have been experienced or the, the language that you're using and the, the details, just everything down to the, the five litre drinking water in the tin cups right up to language like run a mink into a gun some of those phrases seem very much born out of experience and I wonder how much of this um, is something that you experienced growing up or were around or aware of um, In terms of the environment, that is the environment I grew up in and I still put myself back into that environment even though I've apparently grown up so you know that's that's absolutely based on experience and you know I think when you write sometimes you've got to be quite careful of categorising people into grown ups women, men, children, whatever there's a kind of universality to people so I've picked up five litre tubs of water and you know carried them down um, through a woods in the night because for example we're cooking in a you know pit in the woods or doing some crazy thing but it hurts you know and so you know all you have to do is transfer that to the boy and I, and I think for me it's very specific you don't you can't be re- I don't want to create just because of the writing um things which aren't real so absolutely that you know the way that the tractors look or the, the weight of the water or the sound of the mud those are things which you just experience when you live in that environment it's, it's so immersive um the piece i mean it's so poetically written and yet the language just 
every word seems to be um, a portal into the story and there's no kind of there's no sense that um, you're ever parted from the character and inside his head and I wonder is that sense of enclosure and immersion something that you're trying to create when you're when you're writing is it something you're conscious of yeah I mean I think that's for me it's about trying to use fewer words but picking words which essentially work then like keys to unlock imagery in the reader itself you, I credit readers with a lot of intelligence and creativity in their own right so I don't write everything down if that makes sense you know and um, it's very easy to get wound up with your own descriptions and be overly poetic but I f feel that to give enough you say, for example you might you might have three or four sentences that will describe something but actually you, you go with one because that unlocks everything that needs to be unlocked um, so yeah it's a very conscious style it's a very conscious style and I think it if it works it's risky to write that way but when a reader does actually engage with it it creates a very intimate um, very intimate relationship with, with the story I think and to me the story it's very much part of a pastoral tradition of writing a, a British pastoral tradition um, that includes people like Ted Hughes um, and possibly also Seamus Heaney I wonder do you get called upon a lot as a Welsh writer and to what extent does that is that something that you're happy to be called upon as do you find that it's um, it's something that um, you're conflicted about in terms of wanting to be presented as you know as that being your kind of calling card do you think that do you think that this is um, a British story, or that you're addressing British or broader issues? I mean, I would say that the sort of person that I am, for example, I used to teach, but I wouldn't describe myself as a teacher. I would say I teach. Um, similarly, with the writing, I find it, you know, I write. That's what I want to do, um, and I think nationality comes into that as well. Clearly, I'm Welsh, and and that's a very important part of my decision making as I've grown up is to go back and live where I grew up and to work there and the um, the intimacy that I have with the environment there is is massive and it, to the to, to the sort of I've had other options but it's, I love that place so much I want to be there and stay there so there's a clear love of that place and that landscape but it is a double-edged sword in that it's very easy to be hijacked um, as you know, if you like, and people label you, and you're a Welsh writer. I am Welsh. I do write. Therefore, I'm a Welsh writer. But you know, I hope that the the stories that I'm working on, despite them being you know very located in in that part of Wales, are stories which spread wider than that. And the the testament to that is that they've been translated into Arabic, into Italian, into French. Um, the I think that this is a, you know, it's riddled with politics. It's a really, it is a political pitfall. But I would say that first and foremost, the writing should stand on its own. Um, and I should happen to come from Wales. I mean, Roald Dahl did. No one refers to Roald Dahl as a Welsh writer. Um, and I think that's more important is to go beyond that um, and to be seen as someone that's just a good writer, which is what I'm trying to work at. And that's where I come from, is Wales, you know. and and you know, the books that I'm writing are set there, but it's too easy to um, to be uh, big, big fished, if you like, in some respects. You know, I think it's more important to be more, more international than that. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to talk a little bit about animals in the story, and it seems that you 
you write them with great affinity and you seem to be able to inhabit them um, quite um, uncannily. And I wonder, I mean, you're very um, physically extraordinary in describing, and there's, I think, the luxurious ropiness of the mink and, and those kinds of details, but also our sympathy goes out to the badger and the dog as well in the, in the story. And I think that I just wondered when you're um, in the process of writing a story, do you find that your sympathy or your sort of narrative eye wants to see things from, from an animal's perspective? And does that kind of add another dimension to the story? I think this possibly links in with what I said about, you know, my own personal sort of witness of people is that woman, man, child, doesn't matter. There's a, there's a commonality to it. But then if you go beyond that, there's clearly a, there's a commonality to things which are alive as well, or, you know, um, or animate. And with that, you know, I think it's about an empathy without it being um, too, too possibly... You, you, if you cram these things into place, if you think you've got an idea of what a teenager's like and you just apply these... Um, these cliches to it. If you think an, an idea of a dog and you apply cliches to it, and there's a lot of writing like that where tricks are used or devices are used to get across to a reader. Okay, well, this is clearly a you know a middle-aged woman, and this is clearly a small yapping little dog, and this is clearly a you know senile. And I just don't agree that that's necessarily right. I think you you can write quickly and you can write you know clumsily in that that way. But if you regard the commonality of what we're all about. So it's the badger, the mink, the dog, the, the teenager, the gypsy, the, everybody is attempting to survive with the tools they have to hand. And everyone is you know, under the same relative pressures, if you like. Um, and at that point, it becomes about clarity of the effect you have. I think, I think it's very important to understand the effect that something has. Um, so if you're writing about something like this, then... That's that you know that you've got to understand the, and it is about witness. You've got to understand that the dog is does have a drive and is wanting to do a particular thing or not wanting to do a particular thing. That the badger is under stress, and I don't really, I'm not trying to humanise them, but I think that that's a very common thing about you. You're alive, so you're fighting the same battles. That's a clumsy answer, but you know, no, I think I know it. It's really interesting. I, I wanted to. It sort of feeds into what I wanted to ask you next, which was that. There, there seems to be mainly, I suppose, amongst the adults in the story, human adults in the story, um, a delight in cruelty, or at least a kind of magnetised sense that they're all moving towards this this horrible spectacle, kind of inexorably, and that they're they're stuck moving towards that. And it's partly what makes seeing it through, it's seeing it through an adolescent, a pair of adolescent eyes, so unnerving, is that you feel that there's this inescapable movement towards this horrible fight that's going to happen between the dog and the, the badger and I wonder is there something it's a fascinating dynamic when a group starts to move in that direction I wonder when you were writing that did you feel that there was a sort of centrifugal force that took over at a certain point yeah and I think it is that you know that sort of will to cruelty which without being judgmental it does exist in in some people and it it's the magnetic quality of the horrible, if you like. Um, in this, in something like the, the through the boy's eyes, he's obviously he has a certain relationship with his father, and but realizes that when they're out doing these things, these acts, he's got more teamship with him. He's got more intimacy with his father, and that he's 
looked he looks at that then I mean another kid might go out and his, watch his dad play football on a Saturday afternoon and then run around as a mini minor and be really proud of that you know it's how we it's how we gain points with the people that we we want to impress or be, or want to be you know to, to be proud of us um, and I think with the type of like you said the type of cruelty that's going on it's not fast and spectacular and um you know, mesmeric in that respect. It's not the sort of sports-like element of shooting something, shooting a pheasant, which is travelling at whatever miles an hour, and you know, it's going over your shoulder, and you hit it, and there's a sort of whether you like it or not, the fact you've killed it, there's a sense of right, I've, I've scored. This is a process, and it's almost for me, it's um, they're stubborn people. There's this kind of relentless cruelty. Um, proce- this process is something which. Um, yeah, is is more ultimately more dangerous because it's considered and it, it's got that vortex kind of quality to it. So nothing means one thing, and you can see that you know this is essentially an allegory for the boys, the way the boy will grow up and it's his life, you know, ultimately. So that's I think what creates an undercurrent of unnerve as well. Mm. You mentioned the boy's father, and that seems uh, it's a really powerful dynamic between the two of them because you do get the sense and it's kind of a universal yearning I suppose to want to be accepted or acknowledged by your father and you see the boy wanting to impress the father wanting to go along with what the father wants to do which is which is as I mentioned this movement towards this violent spectacle that's going to happen and you identify with him and yet at the same time you're so fearful of of what the boy is being led towards I mean do you, do you think I mean it seems a really interesting treatment of patrimony yeah, and I think there's very much that, you know, there is a, such a such a desire to please in people, um, or in even in this case of this story, the dogs, uh, you know, want to make people proud, and the, you know, there's this kind of. This is how people get got, if you like, you know, is the need to is the need to bond, is the need to impress, is the and if that's you know done the right way, then extraordinary things can come of it. But if it's if it's you know abused or if it's mishandled. Um, then great damage is done, and similarly, that kind of you get the impression the boy puts puts up with whatever he puts up with from his father. The badger is an incredibly stubborn animal, and it's famously you know will more than fight unless it has to. Will put its head down and just rely on the kind of thick fur to protect it. And that's in some respects it's the same process that the boy is going through of just taking that cruelty from his father, you know, almost passively. Um, which is again another sort of undercurrent of, of of the unnerve that's in the story, but absolutely the you know, it's a, I say the commonality of the drive to, the drive for pride. Obviously, the, the father wants to be proud of his son, you know, but the son wants to be proud of his puppy, and you know, it's it's it's, I think there's co- very common things in how we please the reward systems. It's fascinating that there's this chain in the story of loyalty and tenderness, but also violence, and that each. Each connection you mentioned between the father and the son, the son and the dog, it contains all element, all of those elements. And that's, I think, what makes it so moving. Well, I think it's. I mean, I think the type of writing that I've I've chosen, if you like, is not judgmental. I would hope. Um, I think it's not the place, or it's certainly not my place, given the sort of writing that I do, to judge. The characters and the actions of those characters it's more to put it down as it is if you like this is as it is given that 
despite the horrific thing that they're doing, you know, I've got there's perhaps the sense that people still are trying to do their best given the weaponry they've got. The father is trying to include his son and, you know, this is how he's trying to bond and it's it's incredibly messed up, but he's not attempting deliberately to damage the boy. Does that make does that make yeah. sense? He's, you know, there's no there's no deliberate damage done. I think that's an, an, something which again in writing there's all this there's increasing pressure, there's increasing kind of call to be giving reasons for things and cause and effect for them. But actually, life doesn't work quite that way. People aren't sometimes as utterly aware of their, their motivations and the effects that those motive, the action of that motivation then, then has. And to write that is riskier because you're not f- filling the answers around the, the characters. But I think people understand it instinctively. So it's about trying to create as clear a a clearer witness as possible for the reader of, of what's going on and you know instinctively because you've you know you've, you've got empathy in your own right where this is going to go it's interesting that you mention writing from a position of non-judgment because i think that your treatment in the story of gypsies is particularly compelling and non-judgmental you often see images of on television of gypsies doing very TV-worthy things, antics, or you hear terrible stories about them in in the press. Um, Where I'm from, gypsies in Lincolnshire, gypsies tend to move in quite strongly defined groups, um, whereas here they seem to be slightly more diffuse. Um, And I wonder, when when you were approaching writing about gypsies, was it something you did with trepidation, or did you, were you conscious of wanting to approach them from a non-judgmental perspective? Um, Well, I think interestingly, it's this particular piece, if you like, is almost a rider text to um, to a to a longer book, um, and the character who's referred to as the gypsy in this in this story is actually one of the three key characters in that short novel, and so you've you know in that respect you you get an introduction to him and you realise that he he's very much an a sort of antisocial individual, um, lives alone. He's not doesn't have that tribal kind of um, identity that perhaps perhaps you're talking about and actually in terms of um, that that sort of gypsy idea it comes from the from the boy so you know he says he thought he thought he looked like a big gypsy and that immediately gives you an idea because even if I'm not portraying as the writer portraying that guy as that thing I think there's also a sense that you know as the reader what that boy is then going to feel. He's going to distrust him, perhaps. He's going to come in with all all the kind of usual periphery um, uh, distrusts and things which happen with that, with that kind of judgment. And he's nervous of this guy. He doesn't trust him. There's a, usually, immediately he's granted a criminality in the boy's mind, if you like. And there's, you know, some maybe possible uh, ability for violence and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so in, in, in the in the context of the wider book, which he is, he's a key character in. Um, he's not so much a gypsy, if you like. He's just this incredibly antisocial sort of, yeah. Okay, so this is a rider you said to a longer work, and I just I I wanted to ask you about form and what form you favour and and how that um, how going forward is what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, I mean for me it's the short novel. Um, that's where I've chosen to really focus and work on. Um, despite, you know, there is huge commercial pressure and there's pressure from publishers to write longer or to make stories far more obvious, you know, whatever. But 
and I've been through that process of you know almost capitulating to an extent or right okay please don't but, <laughs> but it is that and ultimately you've got you know you've got to go well no this is what I the form I love is that short story what fascinated me with um, with this piece is that the the sort of the short novel that it's that it's part of if you like that it came from a short novel has to have a pace it has to have you know it's not a short story it's not a novel it's a it's a hybrid and and there's certain things will slow it down and and it fascinated me the idea of being able to create something which had correct pace but you had these kind of rider texts a pertinent text so you there's several sort of sections of that which are five six thousand words as this as the dig is um that will illuminate aspects of that short novel but are not necessarily vital to it and so they had standalone pieces as they have to be in their own right but they slot in in a kind of jigsaw way um, while the short novel maintains momentum so for me short novel is I'm what I would be unashamedly digging my heels in about now um, but I would like to get to a stage where you know, I was, I was sort of strong enough for people to recognise that we should drop this term novella. I think that's a different thing. I'd like short novel to exist as its own form, and a novella can be something else. You know, that's that's clearly what I'm after. The short novel seems like such an overlooked or underrated form in publishing when so many great short novels exist and have been written, you say. That's the most intriguing um, aspect of the kind of responses you get when people see a short novel from you as like well these things you know if they'd never worked or they clearly didn't sell or they clearly didn't have any um any value then then you'd have to take that on the chin but you know tell tell conrad tell hemingway tell steinbeck tell, I mean, you could just keep going go and tell scott fitzgerald that the gatsby doesn't work and you know you have for me what it what it creates i think it, what the most exciting thing about it is it creates an extraordinary tension you haven't got long to say something so you can't hide in in beautiful prose you can't you know dip into you know endless backstories about your characters and and revelations and and oh this happened to them and then and, and which is wonderful writing in the right in the right form but in a short novel you've got to give the implication of most of those things or just a one or two significant facts and i think feeding off that um creates an incre I just think it creates an incredible relationship with the reader if if they get it and I've never been in a situation in a reading group or a reading or anything when people have said they don't like short novels I don't so I think you know it is certainly a form which needs to be um, just given more credibility but that's simply down to um, people deciding that they're on the same platform as as a full-length novel people will people will buy them which is their their ultimate point, the publisher's ultimate point is want people to buy them, so tell people that it's good, and they'll buy them it's that simple they're good <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining me down in the Granta Tunnel today, I thought you'd feel at home in the... Uh... no badges yeah, <laughs> I think I just saw one a second ago <laughs> but, um, thank you so much for joining me and, and for reading your story and we look forward to seeing you at more Granta events soon, thank you thanks for joining us on the Granta Podcast do join us next time.